Hello, welcome back to The Antidote, an interview show where I talk to women and gender marginalised comedy writers about what they do in a place of personal significance to them. I'm Rosanna Stevens, and I've been away for a while. So before we get into this episode featuring an interview with Mia Mikado, a reading and bonus interview with Nina Oyama, and a new segment, I'd like to let you know what's been going on since this show was due out five months ago. So in June, I produced a COVID-19 special edition of The Antidote at a time when I genuinely and naively thought the virus would be a short-lived pandemic. Two days before release, George Floyd was murdered by police in Minneapolis and we postponed the release of the episode until a more appropriate time. And before I could set a new release date, I got really sick and I had a cancer scare and in September I had an operation and here we are. I don't have cancer, I just have an aggressive chronic disease, and it's October 2020. We are on the cusp of a US election, Black Lives Matter, and COVID-19 is evidently not a special edition episode of anything. So, to reflect this, the remaining episodes in this series feature a new segment called The Dose, where a new guest comedy writer recommends three things that they are enjoying or at the very least is getting them through the pandemic. The segment entirely features writers of colour and predominantly platforms black and indigenous talent in the United States. Huge thanks to upcoming episode guest R.T. Golapudi and outgoing managing editor of the Belladonna Brianna Haney, your time giving feedback and refining this segment with me is what has made it way better than anything I could have ever come up with on my own. Thank you for making yourselves available. And Brianna is our first guest on The Dose. So you have that series of recommendations to look forward to on this very episode. All of the remaining interviews in this series were recorded about a year ago now. And I still wanted to share them with you because there's something really potent and vulnerable about watching each of these writers' lives and values and priorities and careers change since I sat down with them in these places that they love. And I think there's also a timelessness and a practicality in so much of their advice and insights about doing comedy. But for this episode, we're only time travelling to five months ago. Where we are meeting Mia Mikado in a cupboard in Kansas City on the internet. Hey. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I'm in the strangest spot in my house just to like limit the amount of room noise. I'm surrounded by a piece of foam in a tiny closet upstairs. <laughs> Mia Mikado is a humor writer based in Kansas City. She's a staff writer for Bustle, and her work has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, McSweeney's, Reductress, Bust, The American Bystander, Gizmodo, and The Hairpin, to name a few. But I wanted to talk to Mia because her debut collection of funny essays called Weird But Normal came out this year in June and has been described by Megan Amram as hilarious, warm, relatable, confessional and emotional. Samantha Irby called it excruciatingly hilarious and Mia's neighbour said it was really something. So Mia and I sat 
on the other side of the world from each other and talked about writing a collection of non-fiction essays. We also talked about writing through COVID while living with her husband Riley, her sister who moved in for COVID and her dog Ava and we visited the hot topics of the ethics of representing people in memoir and depression as a comedic writing tool. Usually I go to a place of personal significance for the guest on the show but Mia did something really unexpected and really vulnerable. She got herself a microphone and she brought her home to me. Mia spent a few days recording sounds from her everyday life in lockdown and I've threaded these sounds throughout her interview. For example, this is the sound of Mia watching Love Island, which is usually playing in her house while she's working. And here's Mia reading the opening essay of her debut collection, Weird But Normal, over the sound of Mia enjoying her writing snack of choice, which is pretzels and sparkling water. I spend a lot of my time wondering what it would be like to feel normal all the time. To wake up refreshed after exactly eight hours of sleep and walk through life feeling confident and self-assured. To breathe in the new day and think, I bet everyone I encounter will want to hear what I have to say. Never stopping to wonder, maybe my third grade teacher hated me and I didn't know. To fall asleep so, so easily, never worrying about the dumb thing I said earlier that day or the dumb thing I might say tomorrow or the dumb thing I said in Sunday school a decade ago. I don't think anyone feels completely normal all the time, but I do feel like I've spent much of my life being highly embarrassed by my body, my brain, my whole entire self. I am wildly comfortable being uncomfortable in my own skin. I've tried to wax, pluck, cleanse, ignore, self-care, ironically joke about, and self-deprecatingly tweet the discomfort away, and wow, can you believe it, the feeling of not feeling normal has never actually left me. No, not for you. Ever know. Who do you think is probably the most likely to, like, wake up feeling normal most of the time? Um, It's 100% my husband, Riley. Um, He he is... Uh, I like to call him a golden retriever of a human. He is just extremely optimistic and very upbeat and very good at a lot of things and also has spent much of his life being told that he's good at a lot of things. Like, rightfully so. He's very smart. He's very talented. He's very charming. Um, I do think that he's probably gotten a disproportionate amount of praise because of the fact that he's a a tall white guy who smiles a lot. Um, so yeah, it I honestly it would probably be him. I when I read that piece aloud to him, he was like, "Oh, that you don't feel like that all the time. You don't wake up and just feel like, oh yeah, people want to hear what I have to say. So I don't really have to think too hard about who what that would be like because I." I get to hear it pretty much every day from him. Not in like a, in a bad, like, he isn't aware of himself kind of a way. But yeah, it is very strange to live in a house with somebody who experiences life in almost the exact opposite way that I do. (laughs) It's really cool that you love each other. 
I, have <laughs> yeah. you ever thought about like why or how that is? Like you, because as you said, it kind of provides this like template of difference, just how you experience and encounter the world in so many ways. Yeah. Um, I have found that the relationships that I value most in my life, those people are people that I am both so similar with in ways that seem like, are we the exact same person? And the ways in which we're different, we are completely the opposite. That's the case with my sister and I. That's the case with, like, a couple of my close friends that I've stayed in contact with, like, from high school. Um, And it's definitely the case with Riley. Like, we have the same sense of humor. Um, Our interests kind of overlap in embarrassing, very, like, we basically just act like old people all the time we are already sitting in bed doing crosswords at like 9 p.m we were doing that long before we were quarantining yeah I don't know if there's many people that I would be able to laugh about the things that I can laugh about with him and also uh, sit in bed and do a crossword as quickly as we can so like one of the ways that we're super different is he he thinks to feel and I feel to think um which makes him kind of sound like a robot and makes me sound mm, psychotic, but (laughs) we process the world very differently. And so like that as a primer is going to influence how we think about everything. And then also the fact that while we grew up in very similar situations, like we're both from the Midwest, we're both from like pretty Christian suburban areas, very white areas. He was a young white man in that space and I was a biracial female so it was definitely not completely parallel like his middle school experience and my middle school experience oh boy I don't know if middle school Riley and middle school Mia would have been good friends (laughs) I mean all of these experiences that you're describing being in the midwest growing up in that area being different but also finding kind of normalcy in that when I when I read Weird But Normal, I read your book and really felt like what I was reading was like a manual for, I mean, not not in a sense that it read like a manual, but that it <laughs> this book reads like a manual, but more that it was just... Honestly, my parents would be like, great, she's smart, <laughs> wonderful. That's a use for your college degree. Write a manual. <laughs> it was like a manual for finding your voice working out what it is that you have to say and why and how it is that when you were writing each of these pieces I know some of them came from um publication online as well but did you find yourself going through any kind of personal or interpersonal process while you were producing it oh for sure I so the way that I wrote this book initially started out as a book proposal. Um, People write books in a million different ways, and I learned that while I was writing this book and talking to people who had published books kind of similar to this. Um, The way that I have a book that is published is that I worked with a literary agent who helped me make a book proposal that we then shopped around to different publishers and then settled on an editor and a publishing house from there. Um, And part of that proposal was a pretty detailed outline of every single part of the book. So in that outline, I already had an idea of like, okay, I want it to be in like four or five different sections that cover everything from relationships to work to how you present yourself to how you think about yourself internally. 
So then within each of those sections that I had lined out, I had um, a list of different titles and like quick excerpts from each of the stories that I wanted to tell, whether they were a personal essay or a satirical piece. Um, Like you said, some of those were things that were already published that happened to fit into the theme of the book. Um, But some of those were things that I was just like, I mean, I have a book. I would like to talk about this thing. This is the time to talk about the thing. Um, So I tried to work in as much of that up front so that I knew that I'd have the space to talk about a lot of different things. I think I I had the feeling that I'm hoping and assuming a lot of people who write a book that's at all personal feel, which is like, oh my God, I'm doing this thing. It has to show every single facet of myself. It has to be like the best, funniest, so smart. Oh wow, she's so great. Like talk about every single part of who I am, um, which is overwhelming and impossible. But luckily, I was able to do enough of that where, like, that part of me was satiated while not feeling completely overwhelmed where I'm like, oh, my God, if somebody doesn't read this and know every single thing about me, I'm going to be devastated. So I had a little bit of that, like, self-reflection up front when I was trying to figure out what in general I wanted to talk about. But, yeah, when it got into actually writing the pieces, (laughs) that's when I was like oh, yeah, I agreed to write stuff that was very personal. Was that a good idea? Like, I am too comfortable telling my own secrets. Um, So it was more just me being cautious and being aware of, like, only telling stories that were mine and being very upfront about the fact that, like, you are hearing these stories through my perspective and my voice. They are not necessarily the objective truth because... Uh, I'm going to remember stupid details that nobody else does and other people are going to see me however they're going to see me. So I tried to make it pretty clear that this is going to be very personal and intimate for me, but I'm not trying to like air dirty laundry about anybody else. So you're you're coming up to these parts of writing the book that are confronting or you're realizing they're hard. I know this probably sounds really weird, but often I think about writing in terms of being like a movement process. So like if I'm writing something that's hard, I will get up and I will like leave the room and then I will try not to confront it and then I'll sit Mm. down again and then I'll have to go and think. With that in mind, when you were actually sitting down to produce the harder parts of this book, firstly, like what did you find the harder parts to be? And what was your kind of movement around those parts? Okay. I don't have a desk at my house. And part of that is just because if I had a desk, I would still be writing in my bed anyway. And so why why put up a piece of furniture that I'm going to ignore and just like put stuff on top of? Um, I almost exclusively write in my bed, um, on my couch, I'm upstairs in like this like finished attic space. There's a a different bed. So I write in a second bed or in a coffee shop. Um, There's like a couple coffee shops in Kansas City that will like rotate through. This is the sound of Mia working at home while listening to Coffeevity, which is a website that plays ambient coffee shop noise, except that Mia also listens to this while at coffee shops. So this isn't a COVID thing. This is a Mia thing. So yeah, so when I'm writing, like you were saying, I also have to like, if I have an idea that I'm like, I know that I need to like give myself time and space to think about this, I'll force myself to like get up and move. Um, I do some of my best thinking in the car, which is a very Midwestern thing, I think. Like being able to drive from my house to a coffee shop and not have it be like 
a frustrating like oh I'm sitting in traffic and it's terrible thing like it's a very relaxing thing for me and I feel like that's pretty specific to where I live if I have an idea that I'm going back and forth with or something that I don't feel like it can work out I get in my car and either I either drive home if I'm out or I drive out if I'm home and sometimes I have a, a place in mind when I'm going somewhere and sometimes I'm like eh, I'll end up at a coffee shop it'll be fine I don't remember like exactly where I wrote, was when I wrote specific pieces in the book. I know that because I kind of am a creature of habit and I kind of like have the same five haunts, I probably wrote the like most embarrassing, most intimate things both like in my bed and also at a coffee shop next to like two kids studying for their anatomy test. Um, <laughs> which is always kind of weird. I, I get really like a kid in high school when I'm out writing in public. I don't want anybody to be behind me because I don't want them to see whatever I'm writing because I'm sure it's going to be stupid. And I also like <laughs> don't need them to be like, what the hell is the title of that? All the things I thought about sex. What is she writing? And like get kicked out of a public space. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't really remember where I was when I wrote like specific pieces, but, um, a piece that I know I definitely like moved around my house and like moved to different places while I was writing was, um, the piece about depression. Uh, it's called depression isn't a competition, but why aren't I winning? That was probably the hardest piece to write in part because mental illness isn't like a super fun, like lighthearted thing to talk about. But it was both heavy and cathartic to talk about, like, go through these parts of my life where I was like, oh, I was really, really low and I didn't realize that until looking back at it. Um, the other part of the that piece that was hard and just had more gravity was talking to my mom about her experience with mental health and depression and illness. Um, my mom and I have very different ideas about our respective mental health. And we also like talk about it very differently. I don't know if my mom would say that I have depression, but I would most certainly say that I have depression. So I, I thought it was important to give some sort of context to that piece because I would want to know if somebody was talking about their experience with mental health and mental illness, like how they heard about it growing up, what their frames of references were, if it's something that they experienced within their household. And so I was like, I feel like it's important to give context, but I also don't want to tell a story that isn't mine. So I want to make sure that I'm giving a full picture without like, again, like airing my family's dirty laundry. Not that my family has much dirty laundry, like we're very boring, but in a very like Midwestern way. Yeah, it, that was the hardest piece because I had a conversation with my mom that I had never had before. That was the that was the first time writing where I was like, oh, th I'm writing a book about myself and other people are going to read it. Like, it didn't really sink in until I was taught, like, realized I had to talk to my mom about something that I don't know if I would have talked to her about otherwise. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's simultaneously a really private conversation mm -hmm. and also going to appear in the most public way. Yeah. So in terms of working with your mom as a person and as a character in the essay... How did you talk to her about that and think about that in your representation? So I sent my mom an early version of the chapter just because, again, I didn't want her to think I was like using my book as like a public therapy session to be like, here's what my mom did and that's why I'm the way I am. 
so I sent her an early version of the chapter in an email and like the very non-confrontational person I am like I sent her like a primer to the conversation before the conversation we are both people that process things like we need we need to be told what we're going to talk about and then like take a step back and think about it and then get ready to talk about it so I sent her an email with an early version of the chapter and was like hey I would like to have a conversation with you that we should have anyway um but also part of that is going to be in this book obviously nothing that I published is going to be something that you won't have already read um, beforehand and I'm not using this as a way to shit talk my family so like don't worry about that I literally just want to listen and I think prefacing it with like I this is a conversation where I just want to listen to I'm going to ask you a question I just want to hear what you have to say that was helpful Um, I definitely talked to my therapist before I had that conversation where I was like, I need to broach this really hard topic and I don't know what to do. Help me, doctor. And she was like, I mean, pose it like everybody likes to be asked about themselves. And if you pose it as a question and just give her space to talk, like she will say things that she might not otherwise say or be feel comfortable to tell you things that you probably haven't talked about before. Um, So, yeah, the actual conversation it was very interesting. We Skyped, and she told me that she read the chapter and that she liked it. And then the specific question that I had for her was something that I reference in the book. So I talk a little bit about how I remember my mom growing up, she would get mad or sad and just like leave. And I talked to Anna, my sister, about it and was like, did I make that up? Was that a thing that really happened? Because, you know, when you're little, you're like, I don't know if the things I'm remembering are things that have happened over and over again. I don't know if they're things that just happened once and they're just like deep in my brain. And so my child brain was like, this is a big thing. Remember it. But I had talked to Anna about it and said, do you remember mom leaving like that? And where do you think she went? Also, me saying, like, my mom left (laughs) sounds, like, very big and dramatic. And it wasn't. It was just a, like, mom was sad or upset. And then she, like, goes somewhere. She, like, goes for a drive somewhere. And in the book, I said that I thought that she went and sat in a parking lot. Just a nondescript parking lot. Anna thought that she went and sat in front of Lake Michigan because our town was near Lake Michigan. And when I talked to my mom, she didn't remember doing that at all which was fascinating. And also I was like, oh shit, I don't have a conclusive ending for this. Like this is not, I thought she's gonna be like, here's where I go, that's the end. And instead it became a bigger conversation of like, uh, she didn't remember and like, why didn't she remember that? And why was it something that I remembered? And do, do either of those things mean anything? So yeah, it was a significantly less scary conversation while it was happening than it felt like it would be before it happened. But that's kind of everything all the time, right? Like, it always feels like it's going to be big and scary. And then you're in it and you're like, oh, okay. It's just it's just like how everything is. It was just scary before I did it. <laughs> hey, it's Rosie. It's time for our new segment, The Dose where a comedy writer talks up three things they're enjoying at the moment to thrive in this time in history. And our first guest is comedy writer and video editor Brianna Haney. 
Brianna is a managing editor here at The Belladonna and a features contributor at The Onion. Her writing has been published in The New Yorker, McSweeney's and Reductress and her video editing can be seen on WWE Network, the social pages of I Love You America with Sarah Silverman and many more. You can listen to her piece I Am The Only Tampon in the Beast's Castle read by Tove Chepkurugoy on the second episode of this very podcast, The Antidote. So check it out. Hello, Antidote listeners. My name is Brianna Haney, and I'm here to give you my lowbrow, my highbrow, and what I'm now calling my unibrow recommendation. My first recommendation is my highbrow recommendation, which is W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk. It's a book of essays written in 1903 by W.E.B. Du Bois about the social and political relations of black people. And what I find striking about it and what I usually find so striking about things that were written about race much earlier than, you know, my time is how pertinent they usually are. Everything feels very familiar. And I think right now when we we just, you know, we're having the Black Lives Matter movement reach this point of consciousness in our society, I think it's important to remember that none of this is new and you know it might it might not be something that you've realized or you know maybe because of the because of the black lives matter movement because of the news stories about the the situations it's now coming into your consciousness i think it's important to remember that this is stuff that black people has have been feeling and suffering from for centuries none of this is new so, yeah, that's my recommendation. Um, I think I think it's a really great read. Obviously, not the lightest read, but I'm currently reading it, and yeah, I'm definitely enjoying it. So that's my highbrow. I'm an intellectual suggestion. My lowbrow suggestion. It's holy moly on ABC, also on Hulu the next mornings after it airs. Holy moly is. A genius reality show. Absolutely genius. So the show takes the concept of Wipeout, which is already super fun to watch because it's just a bunch of people doing obstacle courses who probably shouldn't be doing obstacle courses and failing at them and falling into water and combines that with miniature golf. And the show is way funnier than it should be. Rob Riggle is the host, uh, along with another sportscaster who I'm sure someone who watches sports probably recognizes. And uh, they play off each other so well. It's so funny. I watch it Saturday mornings when I'm drinking my coffee. And to give you a sense of what you'll see on the show, they have a hole that's called Dragon's Breath, and they make the contestants dress up in these huge fire retardant suits. Uh, like everything on them is covered. They can see out of this little like plexiglass window, but it's always fogging up because they're breathing and they have to putt through um, a hole that will get them to the flag. But while they're putting, they blast fireballs at them, huge fireballs that come from the mouths of the dragons that are on the sides of the course. The legal documents that they must have these contestants sign, I'm sure, are as large as a dictionary. Yeah, holy moly, ABC, it's my favorite. 
It really makes me wanna go and play miniature golf, but obviously I can't right now. My unibrow recommendation is Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. It's a YA novel set in a fictional African world where magic used to exist and could be wielded by only a certain group of people who due to the disappearance of magic are being oppressed and enslaved by the kingdom. The protagonists go on this journey to restore magic to their world. It's very good. It's the perfect type of novel for right now when you just need an escape from everything that's going on. It's also a part of a trilogy, and I believe the second one just came out. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I highly recommend the first. It's the type of book that I wish I'd had when I was a teen. I was big into fantasy, and a lot of those fantasy books had white protagonists. All good, all fun, but you know, sometimes it's nice to see yourself represented. So yes, Children of Blood and Bone, I highly recommend. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. All right, so those are my recommendations. My highbrow, my lowbrow, and my unibrow. Everybody stay safe, stay healthy, and wear a mask. That was comedy writer and comedy video editor Brianna Haney. To learn more about Brianna and check out her work, you can visit her website at www.briannahaney.com and you can also find her website and the information for all of the guests on this show in the show notes of this episode. Back to our interview with Mia Mikado, who is making coffee and burning the shit out of her tongue. This process of writing essays that are comedic and humorous in many ways it sounds really, really different to writing pieces of satire. What are the key differences for you in writing different styles of humor and comedy? I don't know. The idea of satire feels like a like an exclusive smart club that I don't know if I have the membership to get in. Um, when I sit down and write a funny piece, usually it's inspired by some little nugget of something where I'm like, huh, that's weird. Is that a weird thing for everyone? Am I just thinking it's weird? Um, and then kind of riffing from there. It's most easy and most fun for me to write pieces that answer a very boring question in very interesting ways. So like I have a piece called what even is springtime and then I go through and give a bunch of different definitions of what springtime is but also none of them are actual definitions of what springtime is so I I like answering a normal question in kind of an absurd way that's usually how I approach writing funny stuff and I like talking about things that feel accessible and immediate um, and like part of my actual life I've tried to write like big political satire, but that is, I'm bad at it. It is not the thing that comes naturally to me. It is not something that I get great pleasure and joy out of doing. And also there's so many people doing that and doing it really well that it's hard to feel like that's not just a completely oversaturated space. And unless you're saying something very different or very unique or coming at it from a lens that nobody else is coming at it from, you kind of just feel like you're making the same joke that everyone else is making. So when I think of ideas for like a conceptual humor piece, it's usually me like probably driving in the car and seeing something 
stupid or like the first piece that I got accepted to the New Yorker is called a compiled list of collective nouns. So it's just like names for different groups of things. And that piece happened because when I was driving home, I passed a co-working space and there were all these like young 20-somethings standing outside of a building. You could just tell it was a startup. Everybody was dressed in a way that was like professional but casual. Everyone had their laptop out. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, a group of millennials is called a startup. And then I was like, oh, maybe there's other things like that. So I just like, one, looked up a bunch of actual names of groups of animals, but then just like tried to think of groups of anything. And I know that's not the first time that conceit has been done. And I ended up getting a lot of people responding to that piece with even more clever names of things, which I appreciate. When, I, when I'm writing something and it feels easy and natural, that's when I'm like, okay, this is, this is actually working. This is a piece that I like. And I can usually from that tell like, okay, this feels like my voice. This feels like something I want to read. If it feels like something I want to read, then that's a pretty good indicator that like, okay, this maybe somebody else will want to read it too. This is Mia brainstorming on paper with her dog Ava barking in the background. Writing personal essays is a very different animal. Um, I, this is the first time that I've ever done that in any kind of like real way. I've never been paid to write about myself like that before. Um, And it currently doesn't feel like normal to be like, yeah, someone paid me money to uh, write about what I was like as an eight-year-old. Feels very, like, self-aggrandizing, but it's a very masturbatory exercise to be like, here's who I am and what I think about myself, Um, but also very cathartic, and also that's what I like reading. I like hearing people talk about their experiences in themselves and how that has changed how they think about themselves and other people. Reading how other people think about themselves helps me figure out how to think about myself. So when I started writing these personal essays, I was coming from a place of like, the only experience that I had writing any kind of like nonfiction, autobiographical anything was (laughs) writing on a blog in high school that was terrible and mostly just bad poetry, me complaining about like, not being looked at enough at a football game. Like, it was nothing worth actually writing about and things that I'm very glad are no longer exist on the internet. <laughs> um, writing a personal essay, I definitely came from it from a place of, like, what is the thing that I want to talk about? Some of the pieces were a little bit easier to write because it was like, okay, here's the specific story, and I know that, like, there's a beginning, middle, and end to this thing that happened, and there's kind of a natural moral of sorts or there's some kind of like lesson that I learned or it's like about this very common truism that I think a lot of people experience but some of the pieces were just like I want to talk about like I wanted to talk about how I thought about sex when I was younger and I was like okay how could I do that in a way that feels true and is real but also not just like the very boring (laughs) creative writing 301 essay that's like I lost my virginity and that's just so (laughs) like that everybody has written and everyone has read so writing personal essays is a mix of a couple different things but finishing a personal essay about something that I'm like oh I've always wanted to talk about this 
was a kind of satisfaction that I wasn't expecting and that was really nice. Like it's, if nothing else, I have this piece that I was able to, you know, work through my own bullshit and not a lot of people get to do that as their job. On reflection, what were the main kind of takeaways from producing a series of personal essays that were humorous? I realized that the thing that is most important to me when I'm writing is that it sounds like me. That is, it sounds so like loosey-goosey, doesn't really mean anything, but the, the writers that I love to read are people who have such a distinct perspective and a distinct voice that I would read, I would listen to them talk about literally anything. And so making sure that the way that I communicate is consistent, regardless of whether or not that's like a satirical piece or a a piece about myself where like I'm like narrating my own life. Um, So going forward, I have at the front of my mind that I know I want pieces to sound like me, um, which is helpful. And, uh, and I also feel like having written a whole book, I'm like, oh, that's what I, that's my voice. That's what I sound like it, which I'm sure that'll change. It's changed in the past five years, but it's nice to feel like I have an idea of like who I am and what I sound like and that that's the thing that I value and that I hope other people value about what I write. How do you feel about how you sound? Um, I feel like t- talking about how I sound sounds bullshitty. Like, I don't know how to talk about like, oh, you're a writer voice. And what is that? I, man, I am such a non-academic writer And, like, the things I took away from the creative writing degree I have, I don't know how much of that applies to the stuff that I'm doing. And so, like, talking about, like, find your voice and, like, you just gotta, like, gotta write a bunch of garbage and then in that garbage you're gonna find a gem and that's gonna be you. Like, I don't know, maybe. Sometimes the garbage is you, though, and that's kind of nice. Sometimes you're the garbage, and I realize that I'm a little bit of the garbage, and I like it. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I'm, I'm happy with my voice. I think this book has created a space for me where I can talk about very light and very heavy things, and that's what I want to do. I don't want to feel pigeonholed into like, oh, you can only talk about fluffy, fluffy stuff. You can, or like, you can only talk about political stuff or you can only talk about race or you can only talk about, I don't know, Bath and Body Works. I'd be fine if I could only talk about Bath and Body Works, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they have really Um, great sense and we can't get them in Australia. So we have to like ship them. Really? Mm. Wow. How exotic. Anyway, sorry, total tension. But let's go back to Bath and Body Works and what you can write oh, yeah. about. You you were talking about writing about writing from a position of complexity. It's actually something mm. that Millie Tamaras and I talked about, which is like the way in which for her she was talking about how being a woman of color and writing comedy and satire about like race and about whiteness meant that she felt like it's very easy to be pigeonholed as the comedian who talks about race because she is a woman of color and for her she kind of talked about in her interview like that not being the case and the only person who can determine that's not the case really that's within her control is her have you had to think through or encounter or encounter expectations that you should or can be pigeonholed in your writing and 
what did you do to kind of defy that? Or like, how did they feel? What kind of language has been put upon you or like expectations to frame you in particular ways? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I knew that I wanted to, like with this book, I knew I wanted to talk about things that were both like silly and serious. And I wanted to talk about serious things in a silly way. When I was doing that, I wasn't coming at it from the place of like, I am a biracial woman here and I need to be the voice of da 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 da. But because of the way that the world is and the fact that there is not a lot of representation that isn't white and male and from a very specific like socioeconomic demographic, if you are on the fringes, you become the spokesperson for any person on the fringes. And no no group of people is a monolith. Like I can't speak for all people of color and I should not be expected to and nobody should trust me to do that. I can barely speak for myself. (laughs) Like, it's funny how often I have been expected, usually in like a work situation, to be the like multicultural voice to like, oh, well, does this sound that does this sound too white? And like, I grew up in a very white area. Culturally, I'm very white. I'm also half white. Like, my mom's side of the family is white, and that's who we grew up around. Mm. So the expectation that I would know any other experience than that is kind of absurd in the same way that I'm like, (laughs) I don't approach every single white guy, and I'm like, so lacrosse. Tell me about the sport of lacrosse, because you definitely know about lacrosse, right? (laughs) Yeah, I thankfully haven't been pigeonholed too much i am trying to be conscious of that going into interviews talking about this book honestly and also acknowledge the fact that like there are people much smarter than me that have written much more in-depth things about race and gender and how those things intersect with the rest of our life and i didn't write a book with the hopes of being like and that's intersectionality everyone good night that i'm your teacher now uh so when i've been asked those questions like now as a writer i try to be very upfront about the fact that like i can speak to my own experience but that is not going to be true of everyone and also that shouldn't be the expectation that one voice is the voice of every single person um but yeah, I've been pretty fortunate up until now that because like my the expectation of what I write is just like funny and funny can mean a lot of different things. And it's not like, I don't know, I don't think anyone's looking at me like, tell me if this is funny or not, which is nice, as opposed to like, tell me if this is racist or not, which is a <laughs> thing that I have been asked in the past. when it's like, mm, if you have to ask, the answer is probably yes. So. <laughs> That is a good hot tip from me and Mikado. If you have yeah. to ask, the answer is probably yes. Yeah, if you have to ask if it's racist, it probably is. If you have to ask if it's funny, it's probably not. <laughs> That's what I've learned. This is the sound of Mia taking her antidepressants. From talking about coming from a position of like multiple experiences and angles and also not being expected to write from them. Something that you do open uh, weird but normal with is you, you're really upfront about talking about your depression being sad. Um, 
and kind of diverting from the kind of comedy that mm-hmm. is like just writing about uh, observations about mm-hmm. your depression, describing depression as comedy. And instead, you then kind of write about all of these peculiar things that humans do in the intro. You Mm -hmm. talk about like the rituals of womanhood being really weird and like buying an ocean scented candle for an ocean that isn't there. And so many of these descriptions come from this position of kind of unbelonging as though by not belonging, you're able to see things as true and strange in a way that others just accept to be the case. And that I think when I was reading your essays is really where so much of your comedy comes from because it's your viewpoint. Like you, you find these things and you make them strange and you help the reader realize that they are really strange. I was wondering if this is an approach to seeing the world that actually stems from writing from, for example, your depression rather than writing about it. So like using depression or using the experiences that you have in the world that are often ostracized or othered or minoritized as a lens in a way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense as like yeah. a... Yeah, no, it does. I, I, I mean, saying like I'm writing from my depression and not about it is 100% how I wrote that piece. I'm not writing it like on the other side of like, I had this thing and now it's gone. In the same way, I'm like, I'm not writing about race and gender in it. Like once upon a time, I was a biracial woman and now I'm not. And that's that's that. <laughs> um, I mean, the premise of the whole book is like looking at the things we've accepted as normal and recognizing that they're kind of strange. Um, I did not question a lot growing up. I knew that I felt out of place, but I didn't really want to explore why. I just wanted to be like, assimilate, assimilate, be normal, like just do whatever everyone else is doing so that you don't seem different and that people like you. And I, like most children, prioritized like being liked and having friends and seeming like whatever was the cool, nice, good thing. And obviously growing up in a midwestern suburb where everybody is blonde and named jessica like that's not i'm not gonna be the normal and it took me a very long time to think about that at all like i talk about this a little bit in the book but like i didn't think really deeply about race or gender or politics or religion honestly until almost after college, which is pretty late. Like there are teenagers organizing political movements in a way that I was so concerned about like whether or not I was going to be on the Disney channel, (laughs) like something that was never going to happen. Like I too had ambitious goals, but they were very misguided. (laughs) The way that I write now is 100% formed by who I decided that I needed to be as a person when I like started living on my own and realized like I'm making decisions for myself and I am the authority figure that gets to decide whether or not I think that I am good and if all I'm doing all the time is trying to appease some ambiguous authority figure or some ambiguous like majority I mean not necessarily ambiguous majority it's pretty obvious who the majority is most of the time but if I'm working to appease other people all the time I'm not going to and also that does a disservice to me and everyone else around me so I think my reflection in my writing 100% comes from the fact that sometimes that's me processing a thing in real time it's not as reflective as it probably should be it's it's more like oh 
I, yeah, that I, I recognize that thing is weird, but only now am I like taking a moment to recognize why I feel like it's weird and what that even means. When I think of writing a book, when I think of people who have written books, I often think about books that have been the most wildly successful. And it means that I feel like if I were to write a book, I would probably be very unkind to myself in terms of the expectations that I would put on producing that work. (laughs) You talked about the idea of trying not to constantly think about or being mindful of like trying to please everybody with a, a particular like a majority with your work. So with that in mind, what do you want this book to do? What will make you happy? Like what is the most exciting thing that can come out of it being in the world for yourself? I I don't know. I reached a point where I was like, yeah, there's a lot of different things that could happen. Like there there's a there's a reality in which literally nobody reads this book, which is equally terrifying as everyone reading it. And I I'm kind of trying to figure out in real time what success for this book looks like to me. Um, so far, I have felt most excited when people have talked about a specific line or a joke or some like silly little like throwaway sentence and been like that. I liked that. That's a thing that I think. It was nice to see that I am not the only person that thinks that. I'm trying to not take for granted the fact that that's a very that's a very strange privilege to have to like have a have a weird little yucky thought in your brain validated by other people as like yeah I feel that too that's a normal thing we're all doing that we're all we're all having the yucky thought together but at the same time my brain is like maybe maybe you should be so so sad if this isn't the most successful book in the entire world which obviously it's not gonna be like you know I I don't fully know what success is gonna look like for this book I know that there are books that I love that aren't New York Times bestsellers they're not written by authors who have household names so that's what I'm trying to remind myself of. Like, there are a lot of books out there, and there, <laughs> there are a lot of very good books out there, and I am not judging other people by these absurd metrics, and so I, one, shouldn't expect that that's how other people are judging me. And also, like, I can't expect that of myself. I can't judge myself by standards that aren't realistic and also are just unhealthy. <laughs> like, probably not great to go into something and be like, if this isn't the most successful thing in the world, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, I'm going to, my life's over. Speaking of books that you've really enjoyed yourself, I was wondering if you would tell us about a work that, a particularly a work of comedy that you really loved or enjoyed or admired, what it is and mm-hmm. why. Um, right now I'm reading Wow No Thank You by Samantha Irby, which is a collection of just funny essays. And she, she's one of those people that I would read her write about literally anything. Like, like if she could write about, I don't know, different types of grass and I'd be like, yep, uh, give me that book. I love it. She's somebody that I admire for a lot of different reasons but one of the biggest is that she will write unabashedly about anything and she also doesn't overstate what she does I think there's a tendency with writers to like feel like you have to justify why your voice is important and like the truth is there are more important things sometimes and that's okay 
I'm not writing a book with the aims of like changing every single person's mind and solving every single problem. I'm writing a book to talk about something that I've been thinking about that maybe somebody else has been thinking about and will help them figure out. And Samantha Irby does that in a way that is so real and it feels like you're talking to a friend. Yeah, it's just great. Her her whole everything is really great. Megan Amram is another writer who anything that she writes, I'm like, yeah, give it to me. And she pretty exclusively writes like satire and I guess like fictional humor pieces and not so much personal essays. But yeah, she is able to take things that I would otherwise be like bored, don't want to think about Jared Kushner anymore, or like don't want to think about politics. And she will have a take on that that feels funny and real and not overdone and not exhausting to think about and that I can actually enjoy. Yeah. I just realized, as I was answering that, I was asking, answering that question genuinely and halfway through I was like, oh my God, it sounds like I'm like fluffing the feathers of the two people that blurb my book or like trying to like slightly be like, I would read anything that they attach their name to, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I but, think though that something that I really enjoy about talking to different comedy writers is that there is a sense of community among comedy writers and it is really normal to be referential and also know that person or know their work. It's also really important to recognize that you are based in, as I think Americans call it, flyover (laughs) area of the States. I'm wondering whether you've noticed ways that that impacts your own monologue about being a comedy writer and a humor writer in the U.S. Honestly, I still feel like a liar when I say I'm a comedy writer or I'm a humor writer, just because I also have the assumption that if you are writing comedy, that means you're writing for television and that means that you're either in New York or LA. A thing that is interesting in a strange way to me is how how, fa- how fascinated specifically people in LA are with the Midwest as like this like, oh, what is it? Like, oh, cool. Like, ooh, so quaint. And like, it's very charming that somebody would be like, oh my gosh, how quaint the Midwest. Cows, corn. Makes me appreciate like, oh, okay, I think because I have grown up in this area and haven't lived on the coasts of the states which is like i think again where when people think of the states they're thinking of like the coasts and Mm. i guess i didn't realize how much of my perspective was shaped by where i grew up but like obviously that's that's true about everyone and it's nice to feel reaffirmed by the fact that like oh it the midwest is going from like a place where it's not cool to say that you're from to like It's a totally viable place to be. And like, I'm doing everything that I want to be doing and I'm living in the middle of the country. And that's not a thing that people could do if the internet didn't exist. And I'm, yeah, grateful that I happen to be alive during the time where I am able to do the thing I want to do in the place where I am most comfortable. In terms of doing what you want to do in the place that you are in, I know that you're currently releasing a massive project but what do you look forward to next as well what are you gearing up for and what do you need to do that thing really well yeah um the next big thing would be maybe hopefully 
TV in some capacity. Um, I would love to try and adapt the this book into some sort of serialized thing. Um, Lindy West's Shrill was the her book was the inspiration for the Hulu show and. Um, I know Samantha Irby is also in the process of adapting one of her essay collections for TV, and those are two people whose careers are like what I would like to model my own career after, and are doing things in a in an order and in a way that I didn't think you could do. Like I assumed, like if you write for TV, you like that's where you start. You have to like you had to have gone to college for that. You have to live in this place, and also if you write a book, you have to be famous, otherwise nobody will care. Which, like, that's a little bit true, but um, it's nice to have models that are living today who I can be like, oh, that, I like what they're doing, I want to do that, and also I can, I can do that, I think. Um, so yeah, the next next step would hopefully be adapting the book into some sort of TV serialized thing, um, which is a strange thing to say out loud and know that it's like not completely absurd like if I had told my middle school self one day you're gonna be talking to your friend from Australia on a podcast about how your book could maybe be a tv show she would have like like shit her pants and died she would have been so excited so it's it feels weird to say those things out loud but also cool what do you need to make Mm. television happen for you a lot of money (laughs) I need everybody's love and attention and money, and that's all I ever need. It is give me attention and money. Um, the thing I'm learning is what I need in order to do these like big grandiose things are people who are more experienced and are smarter than me and who I can trust and who also for some reason trust me. Yeah, as somebody that grew up being very much like, I'm going to do the group project all by myself because I have to. And if I don't do it, then it's going to be bad and everyone's going to think it's bad. It has been hard and also really nice to be able to be like, I don't know everything and other people do know the things that I don't know and I can trust them and I can like put my ideas into their hands and they will help make the thing happen. I don't know. I think we could all... (laughs) A thing that I don't understand why more people don't say is, like, I don't know. I wish more people were just like, I don't know how to do the thing, and somebody else does. And that has honestly been the most freeing thing in this, like, very strange job, is being like, I want to do this thing, and I don't know how. Does someone know how? Um, So, yeah, that's what I'm... That's what I think I I need is to know when to ask for help and have people that I that I know will help me. In March of 2019, Mm. I vox popped you at the Satire and Humor Festival in New York City. (laughs) And in the conversation that we had, one of the things that you talked about being really great about and the reason why you came to the festival was because it offered you the opportunity to meet a lot of people that you only knew online and you encountered a physical community. What made you decide to come to this festival? A lot of writers that I really respect online, a lot of people whose work I have read for years and look up to, um, either organized the festival or were some part of it or I just knew were attending. And as someone that lives in the Midwest and doesn't have a built-in physical community of people doing similar things that I'm doing, I really looked forward to the opportunity to spend a weekend around a bunch of people who I knew 
one, I wouldn't have to <laughs> give this preamble of what I'm doing and explaining my job to them, and also talking to people and hearing, just just meeting people who are doing what I'm doing, having coworkers in a in a job where I really don't work with anybody directly. Now uh, we're at a time when Satire and Humor Festival 2020 has hosted some events online and you were still able to take part in them. What do you want to stay the same after having this experience of being at home and also involved in things? Yeah, I benefit directly from people having to move shows online, from people having to take events that were supposed to happen in a specific city where I definitely don't live. Now I'm able to be there and I would have never been able to. A nice thing with the readings, like the Satire and Humor Fest reading being hosted online, like my family can watch it. My friends who aren't going to be able to travel to New York can watch it. So despite all of the like gross tech stuff that has to go along, like all of the obligatory tech mishaps that always happen in those calls, it's really nice to feel like I'm doing a comedy show just because that's not a thing that I ever do here. Like there really isn't that community where I live or and if there is I just like haven't immersed myself in it I hope that that becomes more common and less just a thing that we're doing because we have to just because I've been able to meet people like meet with air quotes people through that that I would never have gotten to meet before and yeah do shows that I would have never gotten to do before so that would be nice if that continued but also I definitely understand if everybody has uh like zoom exhaustion after this yeah but i mean like we can hang out on the internet mia it's cool yeah 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 i will never get tired of you rosie (laughs) that was an interview with humor writer mia mikado who is currently working on her second book and holding hands with her dog now usually we round off each episode with a performance of a comedy piece featured on the belladonna and today we have that and more because you see this episode's reader is Nina Oyama and to learn more about who she is you'll just have to keep listening. Here's this episode's reading. When I married my husband I also married his jars of hair. Written by Libby Marshall. Read by Nina Oyama. When you marry a person you also marry their hobbies. My hobby is baking so I'm usually in the kitchen perfecting my pies, while my husband Tom has an insatiable urge to collect pieces of hair, place them in jars, and delicately arrange them in a system that only makes sense to him and whatever dark god compels him to complete this futile task. Through lots of communication and compromise, we make it work. When Tom and I met in college, I knew he was the one. I was sitting on the quad studying for my biology midterm when I felt a pull on the back of my head. Perched in the tree above me, I spied a sallow boy holding a long pair of rusty scissors. Did you cut my hair? I screeched. He slowly nodded, holding out a lock of my auburn mane. From his leather satchel, he pulled a mason jar and placed my hair inside. Pretty, he said. His voice chattered as if it was unbearably cold though it was a warm spring day. We've been together ever since. Moving in together was a challenge. I wanted a sunny two-bedroom with a chef's kitchen, while Tom wanted a deep hole with thousands of rows of shelves. We compromised on a modest one-bedroom with lots of closet space. 
I used to feel jealous of Tom's hobby. He'd spend hours arranging the jars, cleaning the jars, talking to the jars, but when I wanted to try a new lemon scone recipe, he was too tired or their hair needed him. I decided that if you can't beat him, join him. Now, I distract people while Tom creeps up behind them to collect his snippies. I get to meet interesting people and Tom fills the gaping more of need in his heart with clumps of hair. Win-win. Introducing Tom to my family was a big hurdle. As we sat down at Olive Garden, Tom skidded around the table, chopping off pieces of my family's hair. I broached the topic a few times before, but whenever I asked, Tom had always hissed and regurgitated a milky fluid. I was worried he'd do the same to my mum, but he simply said, HISTORY! Every couple fights about money, and Tom and I are no exception. At first, I assumed Tom's hobby must pay well because he never spoke about having a day job. However, I don't think there is any market for jars of hair. When I asked Tom if his parents gave him money, he scrawled a complex family tree on our wall, ripped off the wallpaper and set it on fire while shrieking, Last, last of, my, of my kind! of my kind! Either way, Tom always pays his half of the bills, so I let him keep his secrets. Our biggest struggle came last year when Tom kept bringing home jars of platinum hair. I also noticed our neighbour Sasha, who used to have hip-length blonde hair, was now sporting a very uneven bob. I confronted Tom and he admitted he had been perching above Sasha's doorway and snipping her hair every evening when she returned home from work. Now we have ground rules for our hobbies. I only buy new cookbooks twice a year and Tom can take no more than four inches of hair from any one person. Well, except me, of course. Now that we've been married four years, we're starting to talk about kids. The way Tom treasures each and every one of his thousands of jars, I know he'd be an amazing father. Last week, I caught him putting a diaper on his biggest jar and singing it a lullaby. I can imagine our family at the park. I'm pushing our daughter on the swing, while Tom teaches our son how to best hold his scissors so he doesn't snip ear. Every woman's dream. A lot of people don't understand Tom's hobby. Some people call it creepy or something out of a Stephen King novel or probably illegal, but I'm not sure how. I reply that marriage is all about compromise. Some men collect classic cars or go on golf trips with the boys, but my man collects hair and that's the way I like it. The author of that piece was Libby Marshall, who is a writer and performer from Chicago, whose work has been featured in Reductress, The Belladonna, Slackjaw and The Weekly Humorist. She is currently working on a book of short stories that will be released in 2021 and you can find her online at libby-marshall.com. And that performance was by Nina Oyama, who is an actor, comedian and comedy writer based in Australia. She is best known for her TV work on Australian shows that she has written and performed on, such as the iconic Utopia, Tonightly with Tom Ballard, and an Australian Directors Guild nominated show she co-wrote with Melina Wicks and co-starred with Angus Thompson called The Angus Project. The other thing Nina became famous for early in COVID was her comedic Instagram and TikTok content, which 
went viral in Australia. So while she was in my sanitized apartment recording Libby's piece, I invited her to stay a bit longer and sit very glamorously facing the inside of an open closet so she could talk to me about comedy and COVID-19 and also the practicalities of wearing multiple creative hats and being wildly outgoing in all of them. I don't really think I do all those things at once. I think the main things that I do that I consider myself to do is comedy writing for screen and stand-up comedy. And they're the things that I pride myself on most. But in saying that, I also do acting. This is just me bragging about my list of credits. But like for some reason, for some reason I got like an an on-screen role, which I'd never had before um, on like a TV show in Australia called Utopia, which was like a high-rating comedy show in Australia. And it is the highest rating comedy show on the ABC. And I don't know how I got a, there's like a whole story about it, but like, yeah, I was chosen to be on screen in a main cast for this role. And then after that, I kept getting acting roles and I still don't understand why, but other people might know me as an actor, but I first and foremostly think of myself as a writer and comedian. Going into wanting to do comedy, it sounds like you didn't immediately think of yourself as an actor. Was that something that you did want to be? No, I don't think I wanted to be an actor because I went to a theatre, I did a theatre degree and I did mostly writing and every time I auditioned to be an actor in something, everyone would always say no and like make me feel like I was a terrible actor and then I just hated actors because I was never allowed to be one and then now I work in the industry as an actor and I'm like, oh, acting is fun and it's not so bad. But I think like, I don't know, probably because I wasn't allowed to be it for a long time is why. Before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. And we found ourselves sitting in my study at a distance. You were doing a stand-up tour. Yeah, so I was doing a show called Nina Oyama is doing me right now. And I called it that because if you say it out loud, it sounds like we're having sex. And the show was about how Sky News, which is like Australia's version of Fox News, they did like a hit piece on me and then a bunch of people sent me death threats and I felt sad. So I was touring that show and it was like a stand-up comedy show all around Australia. And then once coronavirus hit, they cancelled the main two festivals, which were Melbourne and Sydney comedy festivals, which is, I'm glad they did because it would not have been safe. Um, But I did actually get to do the show in Adelaide for two and a half weeks and in Brisbane for a full week to sold out crowds. So, you know, I kind of still was fine, I think, financially. Um, And I also now I have a show. So it sucks, but it's not all bad. And also we are restaging the show in October of this year, which I'm not sure if it's announced, but uh, if it is, it's at the Comedy Store in October. At what point did you come back to Sydney? I got back to Sydney at the end of March. And because I've flew oh my god the craziest thing happened to me so me and my friend were both working on the show together and we were both on the last flight like the nine o'clock flight after we finished shooting and when we got on the plane there was like signs everywhere that were like keep a safe distance 1.5 meters but they were clearly like someone had just made them in microsoft word like they didn't have any logos or any airport certified things but people were like really listening to the signs like everyone was really far apart respecting social distancing and then this woman came along in like a suit and she started putting in all these new signs that said keep your distance and then like surrounded by all these logos and like they weren't clear messaging so we were like told this person from Qantas because he was talking to this woman saying he made the signs himself and then we we're like we really love your signs and we think they're more effective than these other signs and then he was like what really and then he 
gave us first class tickets and we were also because we were terrified so we were wearing like masks and like gloves and like we were just like hand sanitizing like our gloves like we were crazy and um yeah and then we got to sit in first class with our like little masks on and then we both went home and like self-isolated for two weeks so you've flown back and then you start making COVID-19 content yes and it's comedy content I mean, to an extent, I think like it's mostly just infographics with swear words because like Australians think they're so cool when they swear and have Australian words that it's kind of like if you're like, oh, 10 fucking things to do in ISO, they're like, oh, this is comedy. But you just like put a swear word and then said ISO instead of isolation. So I like I'm hesitant to call it comedy content. But I will say it is infographics with swear words and it did take me a long time to make on canva.com, which is the free version of Photoshop because I don't have Photoshop and I don't know how to use it. Why did you make it? Why did I make it? Because all my friends were going out to bars and clubs and I was like sitting in this room, like listening to how like Italy is getting like absolutely ass fucked by the coronavirus and I was like oh my god at first I was like oh all my friends are dumb and then I was like oh no it's because the government isn't doing any freaking messaging it's because people don't know the effects of the coronavirus so then I made like a big infographic just being like hey you can the coronavirus exists on surfaces and you can catch it just through droplets and being around people is bad and then heaps people shared that graphic um and so I made another one which was the guide to lockdown and then that one went viral on reddit and it was called like stay the fuck home or something I can't remember it's really embarrassing now that I think about it I'm like oh I was so earnest but I, I think it got enough hits on reddit that I was kind of like oh this is people are using it as a tool to educate people and then at the end I would put like all the sources that it came from like the ABC and the Guardian primarily so people hopefully could tell from that that it wasn't you know just made up by like a random bitch in her basement (laughs) self-isolating then more recently you started making quarantine comedy is that the isolation video yeah like the the quarantine perfume yes instavid well Fun fact. So I used to be on a show called Tonightly, which is like the Australian version of The Daily Show, but it got cancelled because the people funding it had their money cut off from the government. But because topical new satire shows are really popular in the US, we've decided to pitch Tonightly back to the airwaves because it really is the perfect thing for right now. And I think it's crazy that we don't have a daily satire show. Maybe we have the weekly, but we don't have a daily one. And we've got a team that are wor- used to working together, like making content in a day. So we made a pilot and that quarantine video was part of the pilot. Not to say that I wouldn't make more, but, um, and I will be making more, but that was definitely part of an effort with a team of people trying to make a TV show. It was also the same thing uh, with Thank You Celebrities, which is that clip that went around the world that had normal people thanking celebrities, which I was also part of. It's all part of the same thing. Anyway, give us money. (laughs) If anyone with money is listening to us, which I guess is no one right now because no one has a job. But if you do, give us money. Speaking of having a job and not having a job, I know that a lot of people at the moment are really struggling with being motivated and having structure in their work and their lives. Um, And you've been making content, but behind the scenes, how are you living your life to get through COVID? Good question. Um, I am not having a good time. Um, I don't know. I think it would be mean to pretend that I am. I'm still getting a little bit of work, which is good. Um, enough that I haven't felt the need to apply for like welfare kind of stuff. But I, yeah, pretty much 
I was telling you before, I just watched the L word like every day and I can't stop. And I've watched like five seasons in 10 days, which is like super unhealthy because there's 12 episodes every season. And um, this is why I don't watch TV series that have like a lot of seasons because I watch them all at once and then I become crazy. And I think this has just been a lesson to myself. So once I finish the L word and then finish the L word Generation Q, then I'm like never watching TV again because it's just destroying my life. But um, I find I have found the one productive thing is like if I want to do work, I just like put my phone in another room and then I drink like five coffees and I will get maybe one and a half hours of work done at least. And I don't think it's healthy and I'm not saying it is, but, uh, that's but it's a way how I live my life because I'm a cooked bitch. Um, but I think I'm also really lucky because now that I've moved back home with my housemates, we just cook dinner for each other like every night. And like there's just this amazing food on the table. And then we have like friends over for beers, but we do social distancing. So we like we have this garage door and we like sit on one side of it like two meters away. And then they sit on the other side in the alley just on a bin. It, it's a very like social kind of scene, I think. And I'm very lucky to have that. And I know I'm very lucky to have that. What is the hardest part of this time? For me, like mentally, I feel like I'm just getting a lot of pressure from people to do things when I would rather not do things. Like, yeah, that's I just feel like everyone has an expectation on me and I feel like I'm constantly failing them or not delivering. And then that makes me really sad. And then I go into like a shame spiral. What is the most wonderful thing about this time? I don't know. I don't know what the best thing about this time is. I think it's just forcing people to think differently and work differently And um, it also, it's like really showing different countries for what they are. Like, oh my God, there are so many countries that are fucked. And it's. That is such a great insight, Nina. Is it? Or is it just really cruel? I, I feel bad for Americans because, like, I mean, we already knew Trump is fucked, but like, what better way to show that than like having a global pandemic? We already knew Boris Johnson is fucked. What better way to show that than having a global pandemic? Can I do another worst thing? The worst oh my thing. Oh God, for sure. The worst thing is like, it all started on Friday when I like, I had a really bad week. And then on Friday, for some reason, I just did like all the work that was required of me. And so by Friday night, I was like ecstatic. And my housemate started making margaritas. And then we had like two margaritas at dinner and we we're like, oh, it's, hasn't even we're not even drunk which we clearly were because we made videos <laughs> and we put them on instagram and everyone was like you're so drunk and we were like no we're not it's totally sober and then we just drank like a whole bottle of tequila in a really quick span and then moved on to beers i don't know why we had so much alcohol oh yeah it's because my housemate panic bought alcohol and so we just like got super drunk and then the next day we both like couldn't physically move and i had vomited on my laptop and the keys had been stuck down that's what I found, which was a bad thing because I'm a rider and I need those keys. But basically I called my partner and I was like, hey man, I need help with my laptop. And he was just like, okay. Cause he's like, he's just very good with tech stuff and I'm just not at all good at it with it. But yeah, basically what I ended up doing is like putting in a, a computer mouse and a like wire keyboard and then plugging it into my TV and then shutting the lid of my laptop so that everything went straight into, so it was just a processor. This is not interesting. Anyway, I bought a new laptop like a day to go. It is truly the worst setup because like every Zoom call I take in my room, it just it just like debases you when you're like everybody that you're looking at is like sitting at their desk and you're like just sitting on your fucking mandala bed on the bedspread you bought when you were like 22 
and you smoked bongs. I don't know. I, I just think like it's yeah, the having a big TV is good, having a big monitor, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't recommend vomiting on your keyboard. Keep stay at your desk. That's my get a desk. I need a desk. <laughs> That was an interview with comedian, comedy writer and actor Nina Oyama. And next time on The Antidote, I sit down with satirist, playwright and author Alexandra Petri. Sometimes you become incoherent with rage, but sometimes you become coherent with rage. And that, I think, is what powers a lot of my writing. You can keep up to date with The Antidote by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or follow The Belladonna Comedy on Twitter at the underscore Belladonna's plural or find The Belladonna on Facebook or why not all of these things? Until next time. Thank you.